In this episode, we're going to take you through the mortgage pre-approval process. This is such an important thing for first home buyers to understand. You don't want to find out after you've signed your life away that the bank won't actually give you as much money as you expected. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. have a guest expert for you and we're going to learn about how the finance approval process works. We're joined by Stuart Weems, who's supremely qualified to help us understand what's involved. He's a mortgage broker, a financial planner, an accountant, and author of a number of books, including Rules of the Lending Game and Investopoly. He's also a podcast host. I have and- one. Oh, you have a book. <laughs> <laughs> and co-host. So, hello. Hey, Veronica, Megan, great to be with you. I might Hi, be able to- Stuart answer all those questions and so forth. But what I can't do is have fantastic backgrounds like you ladies. Now, uh, for those of you who aren't watching on YouTube, I am on a mission to find the new home for Home Buyer Academy. Today, we are in the large shoe. So <laughs> duck over to YouTube if you want to see what uh, headquarters for Home Buyer Academy is today. <laughs> and I'm on holidays. I'm in the Napa Valley. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Stuart. Thanks for joining us. Um, there are... Fun? Yeah, you know what? There's a lot of misconceptions about the whole mortgage approval process, and we're super excited that you're here to help us clear them up. Firstly, can we kick off by asking you what exactly is pre-approval? Look, pre-approval just gives a lender an opportunity to um, give you an opinion as to whether they're willing to lend you a certain amount if you were to go and buy a property for a certain amount. So I can go to the bank and say, look, here's my circumstances, here's my deposit, here's my income, here's my history. Um, If I go and buy a $600,000 property, will you lend me $500,000 against that property? And it allows allows a bank to do all the checks necessary in terms of your income, your history, your savings patterns, your spending patterns and so forth, and then come back and say yes or no. Um, of course, it's also subject to you buying a satisfactory property so that they can't check the property itself because, mm. of course, that's unknown. Um, but what it does do is it allows you to learn about any potential uh, borrowing hurdles that you might come up against but before you go and buy a property. 
So this is different. Say- <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we're just talking over each other. So like, oh, come on, give us more information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is it? Uh, I'm going to jump in. I I just want to understand because some people think they go to the bank and the bank says, "Oh yeah, yeah, you can buy five hundred thousand," but that's different to a pre-approval because you've actually got to submit all the paperwork to get a pre-approval, right? There's two there's two types of pre-approvals really. There's uh, system approved, what they call system approved pre-approvals, and and actually what I would refer to as an actual pre-approval. What you want is the actual pre-approval. So a system approved pre-approval just means they put all the information into their system. The system will typically do a credit check uh, and then come up with what's called a credit score, which takes into account you know the credit check and plus all your history and employment history and so forth to. Uh, and the score is a reflection of your credit worthiness, if you like. Um, and if the system's happy with it, then yes, it's all it's all okay. But of course, it's only as good as the information you put into the system. So you know, if you've got some casual employment or your income has varied over last year, or or there's some idiosyncrasies associated with your position, and most people there are. Um, mm. It doesn't allow for an actual credit assessor to go through that and give them you know, that give you the bank's opinion as to whether that's going to be satisfactory or not. So you really want someone, a human being to look at it and say yes or no, rather it just be system approved. Stuart, we're not talking about getting onto an online calculator here, are we? We're, this is not going on to, you know, the bank's website, doing an online calculator and going, oh, that's how much I can borrow. It's far more in depth than that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, the, the online calculators can be a guide sometimes, but uh, I wouldn't be relying upon them at all. You, you really need to go and speak to a mortgage broker. They'll give you a, a far more definitive idea of what your borrowing capacity is. And, um, and that's important too, because, you know, borrowing capacity or maximising my borrowing capacity allows me to spend a little bit more on a property and, and hopefully get a better property for my money. Uh, and we have to realise that borrowing capacity can vary between the banks significantly. So finding the right bank uh, that's going to suit your circumstances uh, is probably the first step in that, uh, getting a pre-approval to ensure that bank's going to uh, lend you what you expect is the second step. Now, that's actually really, one. it is interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, you've got to, because I've heard of people saying, oh, oh I'll just apply with all different banks. I mean, what happens if you actually try to get more than one pre-approval? Well, uh, a credit uh, inquiry is registered on your credit record. And if you have too many inquiries, that will um, impair your, your credit score. So you'll look like a little bit of a bad risk if you have too many inquiries on your credit record. Uh, and also, we've got to realise that credit records now uh, contain a lot more information than what they used to. They used to only contain what's called negative data. So if you did anything wrong, uh, now they contain positive data so that the bank will know um, if you have a credit card, for instance, you know, whether you've met, meet, met the repayments on that credit card on a timely basis over the last two or three years. They'll have that data now. And so if you have, if you behave well from that perspective, you know, your, your score is going to be improved. But too many credit checks will impair your score. The question that we actually were asked in a recent workshop that we ran, and, and that was around credit cards, is it is it a positive thing to have a credit card if you manage it well, or is it a negative thing? And I know there's probably a couple of answers to that because how <laughs> someone's assessed actually depends on their credit card limit as well. So <laughs> like, is that so part of the positive building process you're talking about? Look, it can be a positive thing because um, uh, different banks will will treat 
what they call new to bank customers differently. They'll score them differently because if, if I'm a, a bank and I have no relationship with you whatsoever, then my risk is higher from the bank because I don't know as much about you. Whereas if I if you've been a, a, a transactional customer with, with me for the last 20 years, then I know a lot more about you. And so if you're an, if you're an existing customer of a bank, um, it's easier to get a higher credit score than it, what it would be if you weren't, even if everything is the same other than just the history. So in actual fact, um, to keep your uh, options open, you're probably uh, better, better off to get a, a credit card with almost all the banks uh, so that you have a, a, an ongoing history with them. But of course- Oh, so you're a customer through your credit card perhaps. So you're a customer. If you've got a, if you've got a, a credit card, you're then a credit customer and you're, you're, you will score better than if you didn't have that credit card with that institution. All right, so let's take of- it a step further. <laughs> if you have a credit card with each institution, what could be the negative impact on you when you're assessed for your, your borrowing capacity? Well, the limit of the credit card will reduce your borrowing capacity. So, you know, if you had a $10,000 credit card limit with, you know, all the big four banks, you got 40 grand, that's going to reduce your borrowing capacity. And essentially what the bank will do is even if you repay that credit card in full each month, so you never pay interest on the credit card, they will still take, uh, they'll still include a, rep- a monthly repayment amount equal to 4% of the balance. So, you know, that can really eat into people's borrowing capacity. So, mm. so from a pure borrowing capacity perspective, better off to have no credit cards. From, <laughs> a, from, a, from a credit score perspective, it's better to have lots of credit cards. So it's a really about finding the balance. So I think the answer is for most people, um, probably with the institution they're most likely to use, to particularly if it's a first-time buyer, um, get a credit card with them, but get a really low limit. Um, okay. Have a really basic credit card, two thousand dollar limit or something. Uh, and is that every now going and to mum and dad's bank, or is it? You know, we, you, you mentioned going to a mortgage broker before, not not having too many credit inquiries on your card. You know, how do how, how does a first home buyer really work out which institution might be the best one for them to start this very long process of building their credit history? A good, experienced mortgage broker should be able to get, share these sorts of tips, like having a credit card is going to reduce your credit score and. And those sorts of things, having a good savings pattern, um, all those sorts of things. So find a good mortgage broker with plenty of experience. Um, and anyone with inexperienced experience is going to be able to, you know, add a lot of value to a first-home buyer, um, particularly. And they'll be able to probably identify, you know, at the moment, these are the two lenders that are probably going to be the best for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a, it's not an absolute because, of course. Uh, you know, if I'm going to prepare uh, myself to go and buy my first home, I might not do that for one or two years down the track and, and things yeah. could change. So, of course, it's not an absolute, but at least you're um, doing the best with the information you have at the time. Well, it's going to save you quite a lot of time. Sorry, take you quite a lot of time to save a deposit anyway. <laughs> and one of the things right. that we we encourage, I mean, we in the course, the Your First Home Buyer Guide, there are 10 phases or 10 steps, right, and within each step there are different phases right and the first step is to get your support crew ready because people don't contact mortgage brokers early enough and they don't get this valuable information and they could set themselves up better so this is one Mm. of the reasons why i've got you on today thank you now one of the things that we're finding at the moment is that banks are taking a hell of a long time to process applications what is going on 
Uh, well, a, a couple of things, much higher volumes, uh, significantly higher volumes, uh, particularly for own occupiers rather than investors. Um, so from a loan uh, value perspective, uh, it's up about 66% uh, on, wow. a monthly, on a monthly mm. basis compared to, you know, the average of the last five years. And so it's quite difficult. And, and also um, mortgage volumes can be very lumpy and, and it's very difficult for a business like that to deal with it. So if I'm ANZ, I might nationally receive 30 applications in one day and then the next day I'll receive 100 or 120 <laughs> and then the following day it'll be back down to 20. So it is actually really difficult to, um, to, to um, skill up their back office so that they can deal with that variation in volumes. And then if they get a really strong uplift that's unpredicted, then they're always kind of chasing their tail and it, and it, and it creates problems. So part of it's been volume related. The other part has been on re-onshoring their back office, you know, because obviously lockdowns in India and in, um, in Asia and Thailand and so forth where the banks do use offshoring services, uh, a lot of them can't come to the office anymore. So they've had to mm. uh, bring that back into Australia. So that, um, uh, that, that's not going to end the world, but a, a normal project like something like that might take a year to implement or even, even longer. Well, they've had to kind of do it almost overnight. So again, they're kind of chasing their tail from that perspective. Um, and those volumes don't really help pre-approvals because, of course, if a bank has 10 applications, they're going to prioritise. Yeah. And the purchases that have a settlement date, a definitive settlement date, um, they get prioritised because if we miss settlement, the bank can potentially be up for liability. So um, pre-approvals go to the bottom of the list. So are it's you saying moment. that some people are buying without pre-approvals? Put our hands up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got all got, we're falling over each other with our <laughs> questions for you. But is, is, that information. What, <laughs> is that what you're saying, though, that there, there's a lot of people buying without a pre-approval? Well, I mean, in some circumstances, there it's, it's almost a case of, of um, do that, take the risk or miss the opportunity. Uh, you know, because you really don't have, you know, there's not too many lenders that um, that you can get a really quick turnaround. Mm. There, there has been times uh, over the last couple of decades where the lenders have been really good yeah. um, and you could get a pre-approval within 24 hours. Like yeah. it was super quick. Um, now ANZ won't even pick up a file for 32 days or something like that, like a, a month before Ooh, anyone even looks before at Before they it. even pick it up. And I understand that within the banks themselves, the approval process has gone from sometimes being the individual who can assess and approve the application step one to a whole lot of extra steps that actually takes it up quite to, to, to quite a high level of approval. Exactly right. And then even after it's been approved, it goes through a Q&A process to, to make sure that, you know, that, that the compliance person has complied with the compliance obligations. Like there's so many steps, it's, it's so laborious. Um, and the other problem uh, for the banks is, is lending appetite. Um, and it was only last week, in fact, APRA came out and said to the banks, just be careful, make sure you're not reducing your credit criteria because they've seen the massive uptick in loan volumes. Mm, and thinking, mm. well, hang on, what's happened here? Is it demand or have they loosened up credit? And the, the problem with that for first-time buyers is that typically a first-time buyer is going to probably have not as strong financial position as, mm -hmm. as an upgrade or, or so forth. So it's even more important, I think, for them to make sure they get some good advice from a mortgage broker on how to present their application mm -hmm. so it, it's viewed in the best light.
So there's obviously huge risks in buying without a pre-approval. And, and if you already own a property and you've got equity in that property, and so you're not so reliant on having saved and scraped together every cent of a deposit and then falling under a LVR and things like that, um, you know, obviously for a first home buyer to sit on their heels and wait the 32 days until their files picked up or whatever, it must be just burning, that money will be burning a hole in their pocket after they've saved it for so long and they're watching prices go up. But I guess what you're saying is that just bide your time, get get your broker evolved as early as possible and get yourself underway, you know, all that paperwork underway as early as possible and then don't get itchy feet, don't get out there and buy something before you're ready. Yeah, you've got to be you've got to be well advanced. You've got to prepare months in advance, I would say, um, because it's sometimes it's things that you won't even know or you won't think has an impact. You people won't sit back and go, "Well, I've got a deposit, I've got a job, that's enough." Mm. Um, but you know, going and having a look at your sort of savings pattern or or expenditure pattern, and people might be thinking, "Well, okay, I'm spending a little bit more, but once I've got my property, I know I won't be able to do that." So I'm going to now because the when it doesn't ball. necessarily understand that, do they? Well, they, no. well, they can't actually take that as some sort of given because they've got to go with data and facts. Yeah, exactly right. And then if you're borrowing more than eighty percent of the the property's value, um, it might there might be other checks that need to be uh, taken into account with, because you, you need mortgage insurance, and it won't. Mm. A lot of the banks now approve on behalf of the mortgage insurer. It used to be a long time ago that they would go through two approval processes, but um, a lot of banks now do that themselves. But still, they're going to look at it even closer if they're lending more than 80% of the value. So getting all that work done at the, at the front end is not only important so that you don't go and buy a property and then realise you can't get a loan, um, but, but also making sure that we now know that there's a lot of lead time involved, a lot of waiting time. Um, that if we do that well in advance, at least then when we're actually ready to go, we are actually ready to go. Mm. Pre-approvals have got a time limit on them too, don't they? They do. Most of them only uh, are valid for 90 days. But the reality is if your situation hasn't changed, uh, then it's unlikely the bank's appetite has changed. But So what I typically tell clients to do is just check in at the end of that 90-day period um, if it's a very tight deal, we might we might go back and get the the pre approval re approved. Um, but for most circumstances, all it's for, for our, our perspective, all it's about doing is is checking it still conforms to policy, um, and if nothing's changed with their, their circumstances, it, it's all fine. Now, now lender calculators, so borrowing capacity calculators, can change um, without notification, and so sometimes lenders will say we've changed something, other times they won't. So it's really interesting. You can run uh, borrowing capacity for a client today and you get a certain answer and tomorrow it's a completely different answer, but you don't know what they've changed behind the scenes. So it's important <laughs> then to go back to your mortgage broker and say, look, do we need to update it? Um, and if there's any risk, of course, you should do that, but it's not always necessary. Uh, and the funny thing is we went back for a client to try and update a pre-approval um, uh, with one of the big four and they said, no, we only do that once. We're not going to update it. We oh, actually wanted to. I'm increase. not going to process that again. We're not going to process it again. We wanted to increase the amount, and it's significant. Right. It's several millions of dollars. Right. Um, and they just said, "No, no, no. We only do it once. Bad luck." Well, I said, "Well, we'll just go to another bank. You know, you don't get the deal then." <laughs> um, you know, but they don't. Really care. They just. They're just Cle clearly not a first home buyer, though. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, not if there's a change of millions of dollars. No, no, uh, so, Stuart, one one thing that I think 
um, first time buyers can find a little bit confusing is that they can go to a mortgage broker or they can do these online calculators and different banks will loan the same person different amounts of money. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? Look, it just depends on their credit policy and it depends on the client's circumstances as well. So um, if if you've had a part-time job or you've got casual employment, some lenders might take 100% of that income. Other lenders might say, we're only going to include 80% of that income because it's casual and it could fluctuate. Mm-hmm. So credit policy can be one of those um, factors that can distinguish or change borrowing capacity from one lender to the next. And then it's all the other criteria that is that is not unique to that person that, that's just a bit of a global policy that can change. So um, when a bank tests your affordability, we know that interest rates are incredibly low today two, three percent, um, certainly not more than three percent, um, but they want to make sure that you can repay, still make the repayments if interest rates rise. Mm-hmm. So they'll use a benchmark interest rate, which might be, say, six percent um, to, to test your affordability. But some of those benchmark, benchmark interest rates change. And for a first-home buyer, they can be quite sensitive to those changes because yeah. what they're trying to do is really borrow to their capacity. And they typically have relatively low incomes compared to you know, more mature people in the same industry, for example. So mm-hmm. any additional borrowing capacity they can get can, can make a big difference. Um, hex, uh, hex debt can be a big one as well. So we've found, particularly, uh, it was about three years ago when they changed the repayment terms of that hex debt, um, and they increased it. I think if you earn over 120000 or something, you've got to repay 10% a year. Um, and the repayments start from much lower income amount, I think about 40000 give or take. Mm-hmm. But we've found some in some situations where a client's close to repaying all their hex debt, they might only have $15,000 left, they're, they're sometimes better off to actually make that lump sum repayment uh, and that will actually extend their borrowing capacity. Even though it reduces their deposit, it still extends their borrowing capacity quite significantly. So, Ooh, there's a little nugget. Yeah, so working wow. through those sorts of things, with a, again, with an experienced mortgage broker can help you Extend your borrowing capacity. Obviously, you know, safely, we're not, I'm not suggesting we should go and borrow as much as we can without any consideration to whether it's affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but obviously, maximizing it in a, in a safe way, again, can get you a better property. And I'm sure as, as, you've, as you've spoken in your course and on other podcasts, you know, buying the right asset is incredibly important. Yeah, Very absolutely. So. Yeah. Sort of interesting. And one of the things that I um, I listen to a lot of your Investopoly podcast episodes and, and I find and I encourage our listeners to listen to them as well in terms of learning about a lot of these financial concepts, they're, they're fantastic. Um, and one of the things that you refer to borrowing capacity is effectively as an asset in itself. And and particularly when, you know, when markets, and I'm thinking only a couple of years ago, you know, markets don't boom all the time. And I think that that's what a lot of people when they're trying to buy in these really tough conditions they don't realize that this is just part of a cycle there will become a time when there's there's more opportunities than there are now um, and I'm talking about the future once you bought yourself your really good first home and it's a really good asset and it goes up in value and and your income increases and then you can borrow more money and maybe buy an investment property these are all things for the future but if you make good decisions now and you do view your borrowing capacity as an asset, and I think that's what you're talking about here, Stuart, is ways to make sure that you can borrow as much as possible safely and affordably so that you can buy the best possible house and that will reduce your your re, your 
your requirement to upgrade quicker and you know, all these things cost money. So, um, but I'm interested, you, we've talked earlier about what the risks of buying without a pre-approval would be. And I would imagine most first home buyers would be pretty risk averse about that and not prepared to, to take that, that gamble. What are the risks if they do have a pre-approval? Because it's, having a pre-approval and buying is not totally risk-free, is it? No, because obviously the bank doesn't know what property you're going to buy. And so they, they will want to independently value that property to make sure it's satisfactory security for your loan. Um, and they also don't know what type of property, what type of title, how big it is, um, all those sorts of things that need to conform to credit policy. So um, there's the, the major risk, or not to say it's a major risk in terms of probability, but really the most substantial risk uh, is a valuation shortfall. So if I go and buy a property for 600000 and the bank comes and values it and thinks it's only worth five fifty, then they're going to lend against the lower of either what I've paid or what they're valued at. So now I can only borrow whatever percentage, 90 or 95% of five fifty, and I could, be, I could fall short. There's not really... It's not I mean, really easy to find that, find that other 50000 either, is it, when you've no, scrimped and no, saved no. just to get your minimum deposit? And it doesn't make anyone feel very comfortable having gone and mm, bought something no. for 600 for <laughs> someone to turn around and say, well, we actually don't think it's worth that. Um, how often does it happen? Look, it doesn't really happen that often. Um, I suspect uh, more times than not, it's a, it's a shoddy valuation rather than, um, uh, rather than necessarily someone has overpaid. And typically, the easiest solution, uh, the most expedient solution is just go to another bank and get another valuation. And that would solve, uh, in my experience, probably about 60 or 70 percent of those situations where, you know, bank A will vote at 550 and go to bank B and they'll give you a valuation for 600 and it's, and it's problem solved. Um, if not, uh, then you've got to really find that extra deposit or default on the contract, which isn't, mm. uh, which isn't and neither of those options are necessarily great. Um, the, the, the best thing you can do about that is, is make sure you don't overpay, which, which I think um, uh, first-time buyers are probably more likely to underpay than overpay, you know, underpay, <laughs> undervalue and miss out the op- on, on the opportunity rather than overpay. So I think it's a, a pretty low risk, but having a good idea of what comparable sales is, have sold for yeah. Uh, will give you an idea of exactly what the value the value is going to look at when it comes to valuing that property. And of course, we've got a free course that helps people evaluate how to price a property. Um, you can find that on homebuyeracademy.com.au. And that's using that exact methodology that you've just talked about, the comparable sales that makes sure that people don't overpay, which of course is very important, but don't keep under pitching themselves and missing out in a rising market. So that there's a really incredible resource there for people to to use that actually helps them in the process of making sure that they don't end up with a valuation that's too low. Yeah. And we all know that probably the most frequent uh, sector of the market where that has occurred has been in the brand new sales arena. So where people have bought off the plan and then, you know, markets change and the conditions are different when they actually settle versus when they actually entered into the contract. And uh, there was a lot mm. of talk of the term settlement risk that came up. So these are, and as I said, these are this is a very real risk for buyer, first-time buyers, any buyer really that's buying off the plan now because the market is hot and it will come off the boil at some point. And that is probably the most vulnerable uh, segment of the market. 
Um, and we're not encouraging you to do that. So <laughs> because the other thing too is that your your pre-approval today, you know, we talk about the pre-approval being uh, valid for three months or 90 days. Okay. Now that sort of includes your settlement period, doesn't it? Uh, well, it includes a period up until you get an unconditional approval, which, which I mean, depending on how long, you know, quick lender turnaround times, uh, uh, who knows, typically it might be a week, right? So if you go and buy today, they'll do a bank valuation and then hopefully you've got your unconditional approval. So it should, it it should be on an established off, property though, wouldn't it, rather than an off-plan? Oh, well, it's time you, frame. Yeah. Very, very difficult to get a pre-approval off the plan because if it's yeah. not completed for two or three years, you know, who knows? But notwithstanding who knows what the lender's policy is going to be, mm. who knows what your personal circumstances will be at that time as well. So that's inherently um, uh, more risky than uh, buying an established property. Let's and, pick you know, up on that because that's that's such an important point you've just made, and that is when we talk about the pre-approval process for established properties, it's it's not the same process for off-plan properties because when that approval is granted or the formal approval, so that process between when you when you purchase the property, so the bank has assessed you as being a good lender, that's the pre-approval process, then they have to assess the property as being acceptable risk and, and security. They actually can't assess that part of it until the property is built, can they? So it can be between when you put a contract on or agree to, to terms on an off-plan property and when the bank actually does that final assessment of the property as security can be 12 months, 18 months, two years sometimes. Um, and that pre-approval that you got way back then when you put the contract on is no longer valid. No, it's worthless because the bank can't give you an unconditional approval. There's no obligation for them to lend until they've, until they've assessed the security. So you're right, Megan, the problem, and, and we've seen it over the years where someone's decided to go and buy something off the plan and thinking, oh, we'll settle in a few years' time, and in a few years' time, their circumstances have changed and they can't yeah. get the money anymore. They can't get yeah. the finance. Just something you've got to think through. Well, firstly, don't buy off the plan. <laughs> and then, then secondly, um, uh, you know, th think through those risks even if you th think you want to do something like that. So Another tell piece us, of gold. Yeah, and, you know, obviously singing from the same hymn book as well. We don't want to sound boring, do we? But there's just so many good reasons not to buy off the plan. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen first home buyers make? Uh, without, without a doubt, buying the wrong property. In fact, buying a property for a bar what people think the wrong property for a bargain and they think they've got oh, the, yes. the bargain. Uh, but really all they've got themselves is a terrible asset, probably still at a terrible price. Um, so uh, situations where you sit down with someone trying to educate them, first-time buyers, about how important it is to buy the right asset, and then you, you learn that they've bought this property that's a sort of new-build property, they've paid $50,000 less than the person bought it for off the plan, so they think they've actually bought it under fair market value, but yep. you know that the asset is still probably overvalued, notwithstanding. It doesn't have any fundamentals to drive capital growth. Um, and they've missed the whole point. And they'll take then two or three or four years at best um, before they realise they've got a dud asset because we're all going to have to come to terms with it and, and it takes us a bit of time to realise we've made a mistake. Mm. And then even when we've made a mistake, we think, oh, well, maybe we haven't, so let's just wait a few years to see what happens. <laughs> uh, so I think probably not, you know, you might think the worst thing is they've lost some money. I think the worst thing is they've lost time. You know, that mm. might take them three or four years to get out of that bad investment, whether mm. it's a home or whatever I call it a bad investment. And and it, meanwhile, 
uh, really good property continues to appreciate during that period of time. And all that property has done is impaired that person's financial position rather than uh, improved it. So buying the wrong property, I think the, the first property you buy is the, the most important property you'll probably ever buy in your life. Because if you get it right, if you get that asset selection right, uh, there, there's a compounding benefit throughout the rest of your life. If you get it wrong, uh, unfortunately, the reverse is true as well. Oh, that, it's, it's a sobering note to end our interview on, Stuart. <laughs> it's a high note. So <laughs> true, it, it is, it is, We bang on about it yeah. all, all the time. It is. It, it's it's a, it, an encouraging note in the sense that, yeah, you get it right. Oh, my God. You look back and you've actually leveraged yourself up that ladder in so much more power, powerfully yep. than if you then have to... Get out of a situation, lick your wounds, try to recover some money, save more, and then do it all over again. And and you know we did a we ran a workshop the other week, and there was a student there. In fact, I think we should ask the student if she would come on and do a case study because she mm. she volunteered. Yeah, she had a- not really a first home buyer now, yeah. but she did it and lost money by buying one of those dud assets. And so oh. it's a terrible, terrible story. But we hope that everyone can learn from. From these wise words. <laughs> and, you know, Veronica, you mentioned it like um, it's really difficult market to, for first-time owners to operate in because, you know, prices are moving so quickly. There's so much competition. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, it's a market is a cycle. And I think that's something that we should um, that, that be great to remind people about that um, because I think, you know, at the moment um, it's hard. It, it, it feels it's easy to find the confidence to buy property. Mm-hmm. It's then just finding the property. But when yeah. the market's the other way around, it's not necessarily that easier for first-time buyers to get in the market because if the confidence isn't there in the, as a general term in the market, then we don't necessarily have the confidence. So it's always difficult to buy property in any market. And I think really just patience is the key. There's no point to overpay. There's no point to compromise on quality. Just hang in there. You know, the best time to buy property was probably 20 years ago. But that's done now. We so can't go back there. Whether, that's it. So whether you buy this year or next month or next year, you don't want to wait 10 years, of course, but um, be diligent uh, and markets always move in cycles and I'm sure this cycle will result in greater supply at some point, um, which will temper some price increases. So some true. Amazing <laughs> pieces of advice there from somebody who's been in the industry for a long time and you yourself have traded in a lot of properties, purchased a lot of properties and advised as a financial advisor, you do look at that long-term plan for people and make sure that what they're trying to do now really aligns with what they want to do in the long term. And, you know, that's something we really encourage people to think about. So patience, I think, is very important, but I think the planning and the, the adherence to and the discipline around following that plan is just as valuable as having patience. So yep. that when when a good thing comes up, you actually know it is a good thing. You know what to pay, and you know to move forward with it on confidence. So, Stuart, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on today's podcast. We look forward to having you back again in the future. It's really been fun. Thanks for the invitation. And just remember, patience is not the same as sitting on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in action. <laughs> In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.